Good morning, church. I know uh, I feel kind of silly doing this. Joe just prayed that we would forget our week and move ahead and focus on today. And I just want to say that, like many of you, I'm sure this week has not been an easy one. Whether it's at home, whether it's at school, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's something else. It's so funny how our weeks can consume us to the very, very bitter root of who we are, right? It's so funny that that can happen. And the second song we sang, I'm so thankful that the Lord, in the Lord's providence that we sang this morning, yet not I, but through Christ in me, because I have the lyrics pulled up here, and this is connected to the sermon, trust me, but uh, just a thought I was having back here. Um, Sometimes when we sing songs, we just read them mindlessly and sing them out. But think about the words we sang. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. These are the words we just sang. So in the midst of whatever your week looked like, I now echo what Joe said. We have a Savior who has stand and stood and is standing beside us, regardless of what your week looks like. And so I apologize up front. If I start to cough in the microphone, if, I, if you see the deep breath going in and the arm going up, I don't know, maybe Doug can quickly, or Don can quickly hit the mute button or something, but I apologize ahead of time for any coughing in the microphone that is about to happen. It's been three weeks. I'm trying to get over this cold. I have no idea when, but here we are. Our text this morning uh, is from Galatians 5, verses 13 to 15. If any of you noticed, we read the exact same passage uh, for our pastoral prayers we read last week. I requested that we read the exact same one. That wasn't our uh, loss of consciousness. I purposely requested that passage. But our text this morning is from Galatians 5, 13 to 15. Go ahead and turn there with me. It says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, Paul only speaks to one table of the law here, just to notice an observation. But he continues, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, your word is sufficient. 
Your word is sufficient, and in many ways we can read Philippians 2, we can read Galatians 5, and we can walk away knowing that your spirit convicts our hearts, your spirit moves in us, and your spirit shapes and molds us by your word. And Lord, Lord, this morning I pray that our hearts and minds and lives will be shaped by your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This whole weekend, um, and even I took a day and a half off of work this week, two weeks off, or two days off last week because of this cold, I sat around all day and watched Band of Brothers for, I don't know, the fifth, sixth time, uh, the miniseries on World War II on the 101st Airborne Easy Company that jumped into Normandy and then fought throughout two years of war along the, in the European theater. If you haven't watched that, it's fantastic. I recommend you do so. Um, but as I was preparing for this sermon and watching Band of Brothers, um, the show Seal Team popped into mind on CBS. Nowhere near as good as Band of Brothers, and I'm not commending you to go watch it because it's not worth your time necessarily. But part of the, one, one thing that happens in this show, SEAL Team, it's about a, a, a team of, of Navy SEALs, hence the title. And uh, I don't know, third season, I, I don't even know what season they're in now, but second or third season, Jason Hayes retires. Jason Hayes is the Bravo team leader. So he's, the, he's, he's Bravo one. He's the top guy. Everyone goes to him. He is the one who gives direction and order. He retires. After Bravo One retires, uh, Jason Hayes has to take an office position within the Navy. He doesn't like it, but that's what he's chosen to do to step out from uh, the battlefield. But when he steps away, all of a sudden within Bravo Team, it hits the fan. It turns into a complete and utter mess. There's chaos over who's in charge, even though they did put someone as the new Bravo One. Uh, there is bickering. There is infighting. There is arguing. There is dissension. There is inefficiency. And as you can imagine, being a Navy SEAL and operating a SEAL team, efficiency is one of the most important things. But as a result of their relationship, uh, relationships at that time, inefficiency is a big problem with them. They're a danger to others, and one of their training operations, one of the six SEAL team members, goes into a training operation carrying live ammunition. Could you imagine what could have happened had he loaded his weapon with live ammunition in the training course? And as a result of this inefficiency, as a result of this division, as a result of this dissension, as a result of everything that happens, the brass, the guys up top, sideline Bravo team. They are not allowed to operate. They are stuck in San Diego and have to train and just be with each other and their families, which is not a bad thing, but they cannot do what they're supposed to do. They are sidelined. They're not allowed to operate anymore. And as we read this story of, uh, as we read this epistle of Galatians, this, this letter from Paul, this is exactly what he's warning of to his readers. The very real possibility of being sidelined. And even to make it more extreme, destroyed. Destroyed. 
So Paul is writing this letter, the context here, it's, aw- it's awkward to kind of jump into chapter 5 of what, a six-chapter letter on a random week. But Paul is writing to this church in Galatia. They are Gentile Christians mostly, young believers, and they are not Jewish by ethnicity, most of them, probably a majority of them. And uh, amongst these young Gentile non-Jewish Christians are coming these Jewish folks, the Judaizers. And what these Judaizers are attempting to do is have these Galatian believers submit to various aspects of the law. So that way they can chalk up a little tally mark for what they have done as Judaizers. They can go to their brass and say, look, what I have accomplished in bringing in these young Gentile believers. They are now willing to submit to the law because we have convinced them that that is part of the gospel. That is part of what being a Christian is, is submitting to these law, these aspects of the law. That's kind of what is happening. And so Paul writes this letter. The very first thing he does is he, he uh, admonishes them that there is no other gospel except the one that Paul has preached to them. There is no other. There is no other. Whatever these men are saying to you is false. It is adding burdens upon you that are not really there. And he warns them. Well, first he kind of gives them his his, uh, status as a disciple, as an apostle. And then he warns them. He warns them that, that should you decide to take on these burdens of the law, you are forfeiting the freedom of Jesus Christ. You are forfeiting what Jesus has offered you should you choose to take this road. Should you choose to accept these burdens of the Jewish law, you have forsaken your Savior. But Paul's a smart man and he doesn't stop there because he continues says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. The very first passage of chapter 5. But Paul, being a smart guy, knows that if we stop with this freedom and we don't explain or specify what he is talking about, then there's another ditch. There's another problem. And that is our proclivity to take freedom and give it whatever definition we want to give it. Paul knows that. So he writes chapter 5. He writes chapter 6. Chapter 6, which we're not going to get into specifically, talks about bearing the burdens of our brother. Bear with one another. Bear with those sitting next to you. That's how we get here. That's how we've gotten to 5.13 to 15. To not abandon the freedom of Christ, but also recognize what the freedom of Christ really, truly means. So he says, uh, 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. For you were called to freedom. Point one, freedom to take the exact words from Paul in 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. For those of you in this congregation, those of you sitting here right now, recall the days in which the Spirit was convicting you of your ugliness. 
I can recall the days as a freshman in high school or freshman in college sitting in my bed extremely convicted these very months, November, these very months being convicted of what I had done the night before, convicted of who I was becoming, convicted of the fact that I was failing out of college, that I was making an embarrassment and mockery of myself, and that what I was doing, what I was becoming, was completely and utterly worthless. Recall those days in your life. I can remember very vividly sitting in my bed, waking up on Saturday, Sunday mornings with the very real conviction of what I was becoming, of where I was going. But in Christ's great mercy, at that same time as the Holy Spirit was convicting me of who I was and what I was becoming, at the very same time I was engaging with people who were sharing the gospel with me. At the very same time, not coincidental, complete and utter providence, I was engaging with new friends who were sharing the gospel with me. So recall those days in your life. Maybe that was just recently. Maybe that was 40 years ago. I don't know. But recall those days, that bondage that you felt, that bondage to yourself, and maybe even right this very minute, you are dealing with some habitual sin that has you around the ankle like a lock that a prisoner wears in their cell. Maybe that is you. And you know the bondage. You know the bondage of sin and shame. You recognize that. You feel that in your bones because you've experienced it. But out of such great bondage, as Paul proclaimed to the Galatians, we have received such a glorious and beautiful Savior. As we were supposed to fulfill the law in complete and utter obedience, Adam was supposed to fulfill the commands of God and failed to do so. So that seeped into all of us the inability to fulfill any kind of law in perfection. In God's great mercy, he sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to do what we could not. And it is out of that great mercy and love that the second person of the Trinity has done that we are freed from that bondage. That we are freed from that ankle bracelet that tracks you and monitors you or shackles you to your cell. That is what you have been freed from. And that is what Paul is calling the Galatians to recognize. You have been freed from yourself. I'm getting ahead of myself. You have been freed from yourself. You guys know what it's like to work under a micromanager. I'm sure many of you do. My first teaching job in Auburn, New York, where I was in a residential facility, and it was by far, I hope she never hears this sermon, but by far and away the absolute worst administration I've ever worked under. As a first-year teacher, I was completely inexperienced, so maybe I deserved it. But the micromanaging, you have to do this, you have to do this now, you have to do this. Can I do this? Nope, sorry, you need to do this, you need to do this, you have to do this. That's your life under the law. That's your life outside of Christ. You have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. Can I do that? No, sorry, you need to do this, you need to do this. You know what it's like. Many of you know what it's like to work under a micromanager. You have been freed from that in Christ. 
not from your employer, I'm sorry, that's between you and your employer, but spiritually you have been freed from that. Think of the Passover, right? We've been talking so much of types and shadows over the past several years, it feels like, in Sunday school, in Hebrews, types and shadows. The Passover is a shadow of this freedom that we have been given. The ethnic people of Israel, God's chosen people, were enslaved in Egypt. Enslaved in Egypt. And it was Christ's, it was God's mighty hand that uh, uh, frees them from that. It is the shedding of blood over top of a people, right? The Passover It is a shedding of blood that has been poured over a group of people that they have been identified and set free. That's a shadow of the freedom that we have from our sin and shame. That is a shadow of our freedom. For Christ has set us free. For you were called to freedom, brothers. But 13b, Paul continues, only, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom for the flesh. Do not use your freedom for the flesh. Freedom is not the opportunity and the ability to do whatever you would like. It's not. We live in a world, we live in a society, we live in a country which was founded upon these harks, these heralds, these cries of freedom. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm not here to comment on that. But that is still the harks and heralds and callings of our society 300 years later. And it has become so that we have lost a true understanding of what gospel freedom means and instead blended it with American freedom. When I first got married, there's no law against me sitting down and eating a full family-sized bag of Doritos in one sitting. Not at all. And I did that for many, many years. And Suleyma will say, she said, you can't do that. You can't eat like that. And my response, yes, I can. I'm a grown man and I'm, there's no law against it. But your stomach line, your health, your longevity will tell you you can't do that. But that's what we think of freedom in this country. There's no law against this, so I'm a grown man. Yes, I can. That's our response. That's how we live in this country. That's how we live in this church, not like this specific church, but the American church. That's who we are. I'm a grown man. I can do whatever I want. There's no law saying I can't. But that's exactly what Paul's warning about. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So what does it mean the flesh. What does that mean? Luckily, Paul is a great author and he tells us what he means. In the same letter, in the same chapter, which he didn't have chapters when he wrote it, but later down he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So do not, what does he say? Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Here's the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality. We love to talk about those ones in public. We love to, to hate those and bash those. Idolatry, we don't talk about that one enough sometimes. Sorcery, we don't talk about that ever. But then he says these. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Those are works of the flesh, my friends. Envy, forgot that one. Envy, drunkenness, orgies. And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We so regularly want to speak about sexual immorality. We so regularly want to speak about impurity and sensuality. We so regularly especially at the seminary, speak about alcohol. But we so irregularly speak about enmity. We so irregularly speak about strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissension and divisions and envy. Because what Paul says in that final clause of the sentence, guess what? Guess what? When he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not only referring to drunks. He's not only referring to homosexuals. He's not only referring to those who live, what, LGBTQ lifestyles. No. And if we have become so consumed that we think that's it then we have failed to assess our own hearts and instead have decided to assess other people who aren't even standing in this room to hear the message. But he is very clear that enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy will equally keep you out of the kingdom of God. If those things have taken such a hold and such a firm root in your heart, those things too will keep you outside of the kingdom of God. Do not miss Paul's final clause there. So be careful not to use your freedom for such desires, for your flesh. But instead, Paul writes... Instead, through love, serve one another. So in contrast to the freedom of the flesh, those things that we just spoke about, those things that we cling so tightly to, those things that we change and place into a priority position, instead of concerning ourselves there, through love, serve one another. And I'm particularly taken by Tom Schreiner's translation of this verse. He says this, the text, but become slaves of one another. I believe the Greek has some form of doulos in that passage. I don't speak Greek. I just know some words. But become slaves of one another through love. 
When is the last time we have looked at the person next to us in the, in the seats and considered the fact that you are to be enslaved to that person in service and love? And I'm not talking about your spouse who you're sitting next to. Maybe the person the other side of you or behind you. Think of that. Think of what that means. Become slaves of one another. I want this to happen. I want this to happen. I'm enslaved to the other. I'm enslaved to the other. Is this matter gospel priority? Because if not, I'm enslaved to the other out of love. Are we pouring ourselves out in service of our neighbor or in the service of our own opinions and our own desires? Toby Keith has a fantastic song from the early 2000s. And he says, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about my. I want to talk about number one on my, me, my, what I think, what I know, what I like, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 you usually, but I want to talk about me. Those are the things Paul's talking about when he says works of the flesh. But that is a characterization of each and every single one of us. That is a characterization, a characterization of each and every one of us. For the law was fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as Paul says, I, I said this earlier when I read it, it's interesting because Paul here only brings one table of the law to bear. He's quoting Leviticus 19. And Jesus echoes those two tables of the law in the Gospels. Love God, love your neighbor. But here Paul says only you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's bringing half of the table to bear right now. Why is that? Personally, I believe it's because the whole first four chapters are bringing love of God to bear. If you have sacrificed your love for Christ to these Judaizers, then you are not loving God rightly. You have missed the first table. So here he is bringing the second table to bear. It's not only loving God, it's you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Put my little placeholder in here so I can find my spot one day. And behold, a lawyer stood up, in, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love God, love your neighbor. But he, desiring to justify himself, ask, think of what Paul is saying here in those verses I read a minute ago. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, and he tells this age-old parable. 
A man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. A priest saw the man in need. Whoop, cross the road. Sorry, not going to pass that fodder there. That's dangerous. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite, a temple worker. Whoop, go around. Sorry, don't have time for my neighbor. But a Samaritan, this racial other in the community, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He tells this story, this depiction of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what, brothers and sisters? It's inconvenient. And guess what, brothers and sisters? It's uncomfortable. And guess what? It's ugly and it's gruesome and it's hurtful. But we have been called to love our neighbor as ourselves and to use even stronger language to enslave yourself to one another. To enslave yourself to one another. Let us be a people. Let us be a people who with Paul can also say this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Let us be these people. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let us be a people like that. And he continues, Paul, and I was with you in weakness. He was with them in weakness. He was with them in fear. And he was with them in trembling, he says. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Let us be a people let us be a people who with Paul proclaim and claim to know nothing amongst one another except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's what unites us. And Paul continues. He continues. Did I skip ahead of myself? No, I didn't. He continues this passage which leaves me in great fear. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Insatiating yourself, engorging yourself on your own desires will destroy you, will destroy your brother who you are enslaved to, it will destroy the community around you. It will destroy a church in a heartbeat. And I can't think of language like this that is used anywhere else in the New Testament. This animalistic, provocative language. Watch out for if you bite and devour one another. That's strong language. That's animalistic. That's barbaric. Bite, devour, consume. All of you have seen National Geographic. 
You know when you see those images of, of the, little, the little gazelle standing there and then all of a sudden the pack of lions shows up out of the tall grass and they just devour that thing? There's a reason Paul is using this language. Because it's like that National Geographic episode. Instagram, all of you have Instagram. You go look at nature is metal. Don't do it yet, do it later. And you'll see a, a, a snake eating like a whole deer. That's what Paul is referring to about us misusing our freedom. Like a lion or like some kind of predator that is sneaking around. And then you're bitten. Then you're devoured. Then you're consumed and you don't exist anymore. I was watching a thing on that Instagram page with a lynx, a bobcat, a rabbit. The lynx goes around the tree on one side. Rabbit had no idea it was there. Had the bobcat, the bobcat had the rabbit by the neck. That's all she wrote. That's what this is talking about, though. That's what this is speaking about. If we are not careful, if we continue to insatiate ourselves like, the, like the, uh, the mountain lion on the rabbit, if we continue to do those things, first will be a bite, people will be hurt, then we'll be devouring, people will disappear, and then we'll be full consumption. We will not exist. The church will not be around anymore. I don't think it's ironic or, or just language that Paul happens to use. I think he's very purposeful. Bite, devour, consume. Because as he said in verse 22, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We spend so much time talking about sexual immorality and abortion, and drunkenness, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. Don't hear me say otherwise. But it is the enmity, and the strife, and the jealousy, and the fits of anger, and the rivalries, and the dissension, and the envy that are lurking inside of your hearts this very minute. I don't have worries that you're concerned about LGBTQ seeping up in your family in this church at this moment. I don't think that's a problem here now at this exact second. I could be very wrong. I don't think so. But in my own heart, I very much know that enmity and strife and fits of anger and rivalries and dissension and division and envy are knocking at that door very, very regularly. It just starts with a little bit. Starts with the bite, then comes the devouring, then comes being completely consumed. And you may be saying, Pastor Clay, this is binding on the conscience. This is binding on the conscience, what you're saying right now. I can't do that. No one can bind my conscience. No, nobody can, you're right. And I don't think I'm binding your conscience. I'm not telling you what to believe about certain topics here right now. I wouldn't do that. I'm not telling you that if you're willing to hold to something or to that thing or to that thing, you're wrong. 
But as someone once told me in college, we have these closed-fisted issues, and we have these open-handed issues, and we so regularly confuse the open-handed with the closed-fisted that we bite, devour, and consume one another because of the open-handed issues. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not binding your conscience. I'm just warning you of the sin that is lurking in your own heart. The sin that is lurking in my own heart. The Carly Simon song, You're So Vain, came up the other day. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. The 80s, right? Maybe that's us right now. Instead of saying that, though, you're so selfish, you probably think this sermon is for someone else. But it's not. It's for all of us. It's for you to look at yourself. It's for me to examine myself. Because if I don't examine myself, I will bite somebody. Which will turn into being devoured. Which will turn into being destroyed. The things that are lurking in your heart the things that are lurking in our heart, really do destroy. They really do hurt. So what? So what then? Again, Paul is a marvelous author as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if we are people who claim to have lives characterized by the Spirit... Paul tells us, verses 22 to 24, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things you are free to do as much of as you desire. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have crucified our envy. We have crucified our dissensions and our divisions and our rivalries. We have crucified our fits of anger. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not, let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. We read those verses so regularly. Those of us with little children, we try and control our children with those verses. Right? We, we say them over and over, trying to steer our child's behavior. And in many ways, I think sometimes we think those are verses for children. <laughs> but they're not. They're not. We are so childish. We are so childish. These verses are for us. We are so childish. These verses are for us. For freedom Christ has set us free. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve yourself. 
but become slaves to one another in love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and merciful. As we wander and stray, as our hearts wander and stray, you are so gracious to bring us back into the fold. You are so gracious to give us people around us who love us and whom we can love out of the love that you have given to us. So this morning and every morning, may our love, our love for one another supersede anything else we might believe in our hearts and minds that are not closed-handed issues. May we love one another sacrificially in a way that is inconvenient for us so that we may know what Jesus' inconvenience was like as he came here to rescue people who didn't like him. May that be our model. May that be our life. In Jesus' name.